as you remain standing in body or spirit, we go before God's word, very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have, reciting in Hebrew what was called the Shema and what Jesus, of course, made the basis for the great commandment. So I'll invite you to follow me in Hebrew and we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The setting for the scripture this morning is Exodus 31. Uh, The Israelites have been freed after 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. They've made their way through the Red Sea to freedom. Uh, They've been brought to the mountain, the Mount Sinai, where God, through Moses, has given them the Ten Commandments. And now they are charged with building a tabernacle, a place where God can dwell with them as they continue their journey to the promised land. So we pick up the story in Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for all the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates the Sabbath will be put to death. Anyone who does work on the Sabbath will be cut off from their people for six days. Work is to be done, but the Sabbath is to be a Sabbath day of rest, holy to the Lord. And anyone who does any work on that day will be put to death. The Israelites are to keep and observe the Sabbath, uh, according to all the generations for to come, for this is an everlasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. My youngest son is entering his last semester of, um, of seminary at Duke, and so uh, he sent me a text Thursday to say he had signed up for his classes for the last semester starting in January. And so I couldn't help but have my mind wander back more than 35 years to my own time there. And I started thinking about the good and, and the bad and the ugly of, of those days. And, and the good was clearly basketball and, uh, and the relationships that were forged that uh, I, we've even continued through the years. The bad, well, that was the football and also uh, the stress that went with the papers that we wrote and the, and the tests that we took, which at the time seemed life and death. And now so many years later in the rearview mirror, I wonder if we stressed a bit, bit much about it. But the ugly, the ugly is still imprinted on my mind. Happened one day when I was walking on a part of, of the campus and there was a guy, his name was Dave. And Dave took a soapbox about as tall as what I'm standing on this morning, stood on the, to- on the um, soapbox and began to preach and witness to the students about Jesus Christ. Well, he wasn't really witnessing about Jesus so much as he was telling them they were all going to hell. Now, if you know the Duke students back in my day, that you might consider that he was prophetic. However... The Duke students didn't receive it as that, and, and they engaged him in, in, uh, in uh, verbal sparring. And then the sparring got uglier and uglier, and I couldn't leave. It was like watching a train wreck. And, and I just sat there, 
And then the taunts started coming. And I tell you, he got more taunts and more vicious taunts uh, from the students than any basketball team that ever visited our arena. It was just flat ugly. And I, as I walked off, I made a mental note to myself. It was, is this what witnessing looks like? Well, thankfully, the Lord has shown us a different way. And it's a surprising way, perhaps, and a place where he shows it. I believe the Lord shows us a way to witness, a way to share in the 31st chapter of Exodus. Now, again, let me set the stage. They've been freed from slavery. They've passed through the Red Sea. They've received the Ten Commandments. They're preparing to build a tent so that God can travel with them wherever they go. Now, one of the things that you'll remember probably is that unlike Westerners, uh, the ancient Hebrews don't often think in terms of, uh, they think in terms of pictures, not syllogisms and deductions and propositions the way we uh, think of things today. So if you look at this, you see some interesting pictures that show up in Exodus. And let me set the stage by just asking you, have you ever been to a Jewish wedding? If you had, just kind of keep that in mind. Um, we've even had a joint wedding here in the sanctuary, and so I've seen some of these pictures before. Some basic things happen back in that day in a Jewish wedding. And it starts with a ritual bath called a mikvah that the bride has to go through on, on her wedding day. And then the bride and groom come under a tent, you may have seen this before, called a hoopah. And then under the hoopah they exchange what's called the ketubah, or the vows. And then, of course, the ring And they're married and they enjoy the gifts that have been given to them for the celebration. Now, walk back through the Exodus with me before, uh, that we've seen before this event. We've seen the bride, the people of God, get their ritual bath going through the Red Sea. Now, you might say they didn't get very wet, but nevertheless, it's a picture that they would have recognized of water. And they didn't have a tent, but as Moses was on the mountain, there was a giant cloud, the cloud of God's presence that hovered over them. And then they exchanged their vows, and the vows we still have to this day, and we call them the Ten Commandments. And then they had all sorts of gifts that God had given to them for the wedding. As they left Egypt before the wedding even took place, God um, uh, told the Egyptians to give them all sorts of stuff, and they did. So the only thing that's left out is the actual exchange of the ring. There's a word in Hebrew for this. It's, a, it's the word for symbol or sign. It's the word oat. And what God says is, I'll tell you what the symbol of our wedding will be. I'll tell you what the ring is. The ring is that you keep the Sabbath. That's how people know that you are married to me. That's how they know about our life together. So if we put it all together, what we could say, I think safely, is the Sabbath, this day of rest was a witness to the world about our relationship with God. And it was not an intimidating witness. It was not a witness that yelled. It wasn't a witness that threatened anyone. It was simply, look at our quality of life of rest and dependence and trust. That's what it's like to be in relationship with God. Do any of those things interest you? It's an invitational witness. I saw this a little more clearly this week. Uh, Dinah put me up, Pastor Dinah put me on to a book uh, called uh, Gratitude. The author is a guy named Oliver Sacks. You may have heard of him. He, he died very uh, recently, but he was a neuropathologist. 
And his work of working with uh, uh, patients that have gone through uh, trauma and very difficult situations uh, was actually portrayed in a book uh, that became a movie called Awakenings. You might remember Robin Williams was in it. Well, this was part of the work of Oliver Sacks. He grew up um, uh, Orthodox Jew, but ran in for uh, one of his um, uh, decisions uh, that he made, announcements that he made, offended the family. They judged him very harshly uh, over his uh, sexual identity and basically pushed him out of the family there in the UK. He came over to the United States and he actually ended up leaving the faith and became an atheist. And he spent years as an atheist. And Sachs talks about in this book written before the end of his life entitled Gratitude, the very last chapter in the book written right before he died, it's called Sabbath. And he talks about growing up in that and then rejecting that and, and what he felt like was judgmentalism from his family and not having a place to belong. And, uh, and he threw all that away. And then he met his cousin, a guy named Richard John Allman, who was a Nobel Prize winner in math and in games theory. And they got to know each other. They were contemporaries in age and obviously both very brilliant people. And he started to hang out with Allman, and he noticed one of the things that Allman, as a devout Jew, did was he always kept the Sabbath. When they told him he'd won the Nobel Prize, he said, I cannot accept it if I have to travel on a Saturday. I cannot accept it if I can't take my family and, and they be allowed to eat non, uh, be allowed rather to eat kosher food while we were there. And, and so if any of these are involved, it's okay. I understand and I'm happy not to accept this Nobel Prize. Well, that sort of got the attention of his cousin, who began to watch Alman's life of celebrating the Sabbath, and he noticed the joy and the peace that it brought. And so he began to realize that there was another way to life. And toward the end about living life, toward the end of his life, Oliver Sacks writes this, I find my mind at the end of my life drifting toward the Sabbath, and I wonder if I would have kept it. How might things have been different? What kind of person might I have become? And he quoted his cousin who said to him one day, Oliver, the Sabbath is a beautiful thing. It's not even about the question of how it benefits society. It's, the question is about how it benefits our own life. Well, I don't usually pick fights with Nobel Prize winners. So I won't. I, I completely agree that keeping the Sabbath, this day of rest benefits our lives. We talked about it last week. It improves our relationships with other people, improves our relationship with God, helps ensure our freedom from the pursuit of things and the opinions of others. But I do want to say, I think Alman has missed it, that is, in fact, it is about the betterment of society. It is about showing society that there is a better way to live life, a way of trust, a way of dependence, a way of freedom, a way of rest. And I believe that as Christians, we celebrate Jesus as the Sabbath as well. He is the one who said, come to me, those of you who are burdened, I'll give you rest. He said in the Gospel of John, I've come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Jesus intends us to live a life with him, a life that does not involve striving, a life that involves rest, and a life that involves freedom and joy and peace. 
And that life, by the way it's lived, its very nature is invitational. And it's interesting to me as I look at the story of Oliver Sacks, his cousin never debated him, never argued with him, never threatened with him. He just lived this Sabbath life and Sacks got interested by what he saw. And I'm convinced that whether it's the Sabbath or whether it's about Jesus Christ himself, the way of argument, the way of debates, handing out tracts, sponsoring crusades, none of them have the effect of living a life with Christ that is so peaceful and restful that it is invitational and it welcomes people and gives them a taste of something that is different. And I believe it becomes then the model for how we share the faith, not through argument, but simply by the way we rest and trust in our own life. But you might rightfully object, hey, wait a minute, didn't God say through Moses that if they didn't keep the Sabbath, they'd be put to death? Well, yes. That seems a bit heavy-handed. Yes. But let me tell you what scholars uh, uh, have said about this. That is, if you look at the whole book of Exodus, you've come all the way through the Ten Commandments, you're getting ready to build this tent where God will be with you. So Genesis is about God builds a place for us, creating the heavens and the earth, and now in Exodus we build a place for God. And that's such important work that God knew that the people would be so eager about this work that they might be willing to do the work of God in a way that doesn't reflect the character of God. You see, even in creating the heavens and the earth, God had to rest. But God knew that the people might be so excited about building this tent so that God could always be with them that they might not rest in the building of it. They might do God's work in a way that doesn't reflect God's character. And so God gave them the biggest stop sign, flashing signal that God could give, which is to say, if you do this, you die. If you don't do it in my character, it won't go well. And then I thought back to Dave that afternoon at Duke, and I thought about how he witnessed for Jesus with invective and with threat and with raised voice and with all of the things that are not characteristic of the one who said, come to me if you're weary, I'll give you rest for I am gentle and humble of heart. Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, one of the ways we'll recognize him is he wouldn't even extinguish a dimly burning wick. That a reed that was already bent, he would not break. That would be the gentleness and the rest and the peace with which he would approach life. And I thought about doing this thing for God, how Dave got so far from God's character. Another thing to say is I think also we have to remember that Hebrews think in pictures. And, and um, so God's trying to give them a picture of what life looks like. If you don't rest, if you don't trust, you end up the walking dead. You might as well be dead. And so the, actually the threat is not to talk about capital punishment. The death is to say this is what it looks like if we don't rest, if we don't trust. The Sabbath, just like Jesus himself, was meant not to be an argument, 
but an invitation, a gracious invitation to a different way of life. I'm reminded of Christian counselor Larry Crabb in Colorado. Talks about when he was growing up on, on Sunday, uh, he was allowed to invite a friend to Sunday dinners and, and the family would come over after church and they were raucous, joyful, laughter-filled uh, affairs with lots of uh, teasing and, and fun. And so he said he had a friend that would come most every Sunday. And then when the, uh, when the lunch was over, the friend would go home, only found out years later the friend didn't go home he actually was hiding on the porch because the windows were open and the doors were open there was just a screen door and the friend who came from a very dysfunctional home would spend the afternoon and listen to larry's family laugh and rejoice and tease and play with each other all afternoon and he longed to be in that house. I believe the Sabbath is that kind of house, a place of rest and joy and peace. And I believe Jesus is that kind of Lord who invites us in to rest. And it is our relationship with him, not with words, but resting in him that becomes a witness. So here we read the names this morning we lit the candles, and I had the privilege of knowing a good many of the people and their story. And I have to tell you, as I think back about the folks who we named this morning, I don't remember the arguments or theological points that we agreed on or disagreed on or doctrines that we shared. What I remember is the way they faced life and difficulty and even death with an attitude of trust and peace and their life and even their death, became a witness to me.